Episode 50 is finally here, the big five zero, the monument, the marker. And as promised, we are getting into a long form Q&A session, answering all of your questions here that were asked to the Glorious Rescue. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Josiah Evertson, and this is the Glorious Rescue. Aren't you tired of feeling forced to choose between staying informed and being indoctrinated? Listen to the condensed news cycle without the lies, agendas, and confusion from the mainstream media all while engaging in deeper discussions about the principles that have influenced our great nation. This is what rescuing America looks like. This is the Glorious Rescue. Like I mentioned, it is the big episode number 50, and as of the date that this episode is being released, it is Black Friday. You may be listening to it a day or two late, obviously, I understand, and actually the day that this is being recorded is Thanksgiving, so thank you to all of you as listeners and supporters and all of that. But in the spirit of Black Friday and in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I wanted to pass along something that hopefully is helpful. If you remember in our last episode, if you haven't listened, go ahead and check it out, quick plug there available on all Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and all the other popular platforms. The Like I said, in the spirit of Black Friday, of all the deals, the great deals that you think are one-in-a-lifetime or once-a-year type sales, according to a recent study, which had to be a huge sample data, 95% of those deals are offered in the next 12 months, will be offered in the next 12 months, excluding Black Friday next year. I mean, by the time of Black Friday this year, up until in the next 11, 12 months, that same exact deal, 95% of those deals will be offered during the normal business year. So don't be fooled. And hopefully that helps you as you are indulging your shopping sprees. And hopefully maybe this episode is, because maybe instead of going out and shopping like crazy, you're under Gavin Newsom's tyranny and most of it's closed anyways, or you're instead choosing to listen to the Glorious Rescue where we are answering all of your questions and not just stealing your wallet, but feeding your mind. And that is what the goal is of the show here. Just a quick mention on the giveaway. If you have been listening to the show, you have known that the deadline ended today or yesterday. And the winner is Josiah Tester. And he's a listener, I believe, from Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken. That's according to the info that I was able to pull up. So congratulations, Josiah. You have been notified. And for all of you who did not win, just stay tuned because giveaways are always coming. With that, we're actually going to get right into the very first question because I don't want to spend a lot of time on preliminaries. I want to spend more time answering your questions. And thank you to those who did submit a question. First one being, what are your views on U.S. foreign intervention? For instance, the Iraqi war and whatnot. First of all, I want to say there's been a huge shift both in the Republican Party and the Democrat Party in terms of foreign policy and in terms of war. In fact, the parties have actually almost flopped, flipped com- completely, completely flipped. And that is, if you look back through history, not that Republicans have been pro-war, do not misunderstand me, but that Republicans in general have feel more justification in going to war than Democrats. Democrats, the Liberal Party has always been less desirous of going to war. Again, it's personal preference, but in recent years that has actually flipped. I do believe it's because of the Iraqi war, because of the Vietnam war, because of the Korean war and whatnot. But so I want to preface it with that. I also want to preface by saying that the Iraqi war is the anomaly. It is not the rule. There are many people who would agree almost completely entirely on foreign foreign policy, on national affairs, on intelligence, on all these different items even on war in general and what constitutes um, the legitimate entry for American troops in a war, they would agree completely, except on the Iraqi war, because it is so polarizing, sometimes because it's emotional with family members, but also because politics really muddled it and really messed it up. 
And so I want to say, don't make the Iraqi war be the rule, make it the realize that it's kind of the anomaly, kind of the exception to the rule, and that many people from many different sides agree, disagree on all different sides of the issue. Now I'm going to move over to a quick reference, and that is Charlie Kirk's book, The MAGA Doctrine. I actually, I'm going to reference this book from Ben Shapiro a little bit later, but one thing that I forgot to mention, if you remember back in episode 45, we went through resources and some of the books that I recommend, I forgot to mention that this actually is a signed copy of Charlie Kirk's MAGA Doctrine, signed by Charlie Kirk himself, where he says Josiah MAGA. And I just wanted to briefly reference this book. I just wanted to kind of mention that because I find great pleasure in that, but I just wanted to briefly reference his book. And I want to do so because I agree with him in many ways and I disagree with him in many ways because, again, he kind of falls under the more modern Republican view. So he says here something that I completely agree with. Make no mistake, Trump knows a strong U.S. military is a key to maintaining world peace and he wants the United States to intervene in a decisive, strong fashion when it absolutely must. But his preference, unlike that of so many establishment figures in Washington, is for peace. Again, I think peace is the end goal for all of us, right? That is what we want. The question of where we get into more debate is what constitutes the legitimate entry for America into war. And so he makes that statement that Trump is for decisive entry when it's absolutely necessary. I think that is a good rule of thumb. But here is something that I completely disagree with, where he says at a different time, because again, he cons- I, cons- I consider him more Machiavellian and justifies the means type. He says... The days when fragile American pride required that we fight every imaginable enemy to the end of days are, I think, fading into history along with duels and empires. So first and foremost, I think most Americans agree with both of these statements. Basically every American. Those aren't controversial. On one hand, we believe every once in a while Americans should get involved in war when it's absolutely necessary and we must do so decisively, powerfully, and then do so to resolve the conflict, go to peace, and then come back. And then we agree with this other statement where he says that we don't need that fragile American pride, that that does not have to push us into unnecessary conflicts. Well, everyone agrees with that. The question is, what is in the middle? Because that is where people actually disagree with. And that's where I would get into disagreements with Charlie Kirk, because he would basically say, if it's opportunistic for us, if it's advantageous, not like imperialistic, like if we take over that nation, then we should go for it. But only if it's going to have repercussions on America is his type of, of mentality and i disagree with that so i'm of the persuasion that if we have the opportunity we generally should i hate to use the example of the schoolroom and the teacher but kind of like the schoolroom children behave better when there's a teacher and i don't want to say that because i don't want it to be like america's the best and all that but and the and i don't want to portray i should say the imperialism of america that we're the teacher and we're teaching everyone a lesson don't get me wrong there i do believe in honestly, the superiority, at least militarily, of the United States. And with that power comes responsibility, as was put so wisely before. But we have the responsibility, not just when it's advantageous to us. Think about it like this. Most Americans would agree we should have been involved in the world wars, stopping Hitler and Mussolini. The Cold War with Joseph Stalin, but we never actually went to war and eradicated Stalin. I think of how we handled Saddam Hussein versus Fidel Castro. Think about how we were able to depose Saddam Hussein. Yes, there's obviously not peace in that area right now, but Fidel Castro, much worse, much more harmful to those citizens. The Middle East is kind of the anomaly, like I said. What I'm trying to get to is the very simple point 
that when we have the opportunity to to do good, we should. What Charlie Kirk said that it's about fragile American pride is completely wrong. It's about the ideals, the principles of freedom. And America and the flag of our country stands on soil in which there should be freedom. So I know I'm getting quite lengthy here, so I'll just briefly wrap it up with the Iraqi war. It's the anomaly. We didn't enter right. We haven't stayed right. I think we're not going to leave right. And so that's kind of a rough situation per se. But I do believe U.S. involvement in war and in the foreign scale, I would do so more voluntarily and more pronounced than what most Republicans would say. And I believe that's because most Republicans have actually backed away from the original position because I do believe those ideals. And when those ideals of liberty are being pushed down, of course, not every single time we can't, but the vast majority of times in which we have the power to do so, because we do have that opportunity, we should do that good. We should go into the aid of the citizens and promote that liberty on whatever side that is and use our military might to do so. And Charlie Kirk and a lot of the Republicans say, well, what good is that to us? We're going to drain our military. We're going to drain our resources. But if we do so decisively, in the end, it will pay off because we will have a lot more allies. We will have a lot more countries that promote liberty, that promote defending human rights and whatnot. So long answer, but we have a fewer number of questions than I expected. So I know I can take a little bit more time to get into it next. What are some of the books you would recommend to someone just getting interested in politics or someone looking for a good overview in politics? First things first, the Bible. No doubt in my mind. Everything in our nation, no matter what the atheists, no matter what the seculars try to say or deny, our country, our system is founded upon biblical values. I think of the Mosaic Law, and that's really how our judicial system is founded, our, our moral laws and our simple laws based off that Mosaic Law. The principles of self-government, the Bible teaches about responsibility and, and self-government. And those are huge principles, the consent of the governed in our nation, the virtue. We talked about in the last episode, the correlation between virtue and the pursuit of happiness, that the pursuit of happiness is to pursue virtue because living a virtuous life means living a life that you are able to pursue happiness freely because pursuing virtue is pursuing happiness is the fundamental idea. The influence of our founding, the influence the Bible had and the scripture had on our founders and their writings. We went through that many times in previous episodes. The foundation of our documents, our documents, we're going to talk about the Declaration of Independence a little bit later, is founded upon biblical principles. In fact, the entire appeal is a biblical appeal, a universal appeal, but it's universal because it's founded on the universal principles of scripture. The Judeo-Christian culture, the Judeo-Christian system of our nation founded upon those same values of the Bible. Obviously, the Judeo-Christian culture and system is all based upon the Bible, and our nation is founded upon that Judeo-Christian system. Our systems of government, we talked about Montesquieu and his writings. The three branches of government, that comes directly from a specific Bible verse. The Lord is our king, lawmaker, and judge, I believe it is. The three branches of government, right there from our Bible. So, first and foremost, the scripture, that's a big one. I would say head on over to episode 45 because in that I give a much more extensive list. I'm not going to do that in today's episode. We don't have the time, but I'll just mention two of them, not necessarily this one because I did already kind of talk about it and there are things that I substantially disagree with. Very grateful for Charlie Kirk and all his work and I agree with him on the vast majority of things. Just some things a little bit Machiavellian, like I said before, but one, maybe because I'm a little bit biased, Ben Shapiro's How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. By the way, I don't know if I mentioned this. I definitely didn't mention that in episode 45, but uh, I might as well mention it here in this episode that this book as well is a signed copy by the Ben Shapiro, the official Ben Shapiro. But this is a great book, an overview on politics, but also our American system. So you get history, philosophy, culture, those Judeo-Christian values, why they're so important in and how our politics 
plays out in our nation. Philosophy, religion, history, all playing into politics. That's a very good overview. I think just as important is studying great men of history. Because more importantly than just reading someone's commentary on politics or someone's biased perception of history and how history unfolded, don't get me wrong, history is vitally important. It, but I think more importantly than just that is actually reading about historical figures, great men and women of the past who influenced their culture, who changed the world for the better. So one of those, my favorite probably, at least in biographies, is Larry Arnold Churchill's trial. Because again, you read of these great men and you want to emulate that character and live a life like that person, taking on those good qualities. So I think those would be good introductions into politics, general overviews. You kind of get the history, the philosophy, but also that personal side. Biographies of great men throughout history are always great, and I do recommend Larry on Churchill's trial. It's a little bit of an easier read because it's more topically arranged rather than chronologically, but also very, very important. Next, what are the reasons why I voted for Donald Trump, and what are the reasons why I should never vote for Joe Biden or did not vote for Joe Biden? When this question was asked, it was very emphatically asked to be specific. Specific, very, very specific. So it makes me think that I'm not a very detailed, factual, specific individual. I hope I am. But that is what this question, the answer I will give to this question, seeks to answer very specifically. And that is, first and foremost, I did not vote for Donald Trump in 2016. But that's because I could not vote. Now, I'm not saying that I would have voted for Donald Trump in 2016 because I'm going to give you these three reasons why I would vote for Donald Trump. These are kind of the catch-all with the more detailed information inside of them to keep it to three reasons. And those would be the exact same three reasons why I wouldn't vote for Joe Biden. But all of these three reasons were all reasons that I would have questioned in 2016 if I were eligible to vote. Because his track record for 2020 proves these three items. But in 2016, I was very unsure of and so I don't know how I would have voted in 2016. I would have paid a little more attention than I did. But first and foremost, his platform. Back in 2016, the Republican Party released a platform, a very a written out platform. So to be factual, to be evidential, to be very specific, it was a very written out platform. And in that platform, it was the most conservative platform of any political party for decades. What was on it? Abortion. The Republican Party stated completely that they believe that life began at conception. That was completely opening up the door for the discussion about abortion being completely eradicated. They stated that very matter-of-factly. They stated the matter-of-fact, the idea of the Middle East and Jerusalem and Israel being our allies. They said traditional marriage. They said they believed that marriage was between a man and a woman. They talked about capitalism, deregulation of business, lowering taxes, less government intervention in businesses and individuals, immigration policy, and border control. Also, so with that, the question of the 2016 election was, okay, this is the Republican Party. Trump's running on the Republican ticket. Is this his platform as well? Now in 2020, he ran on basically that same platform as 2016. He said, make America great again. This election was keep America great. So it was on that same platform. And I do believe that that was his platform as well. For instance, Last Christmas, I believe it was, Donald Trump put out a video recognizing Jesus Christ as the savior of the world. It was a an official White House release. That hasn't been done in decades, I would believe, where an actual sitting U.S. president says Jesus Christ is the savior of the world in an official video. So it's platform. 
Again, the most conservative platform written out specifically detailed. Those are just some of the reasons his platform. And he stood true to that in 2020 as well, or throughout his presidency, I would say. Next, going off of why I wouldn't vote for Joe Biden is because Joe Biden's platform. So contrasting the two, same reason is that Joe Biden's platform was basically nothing. We don't know what his platform was. We still don't know what it was. Now he calls for unity after he won. Hope I don't know. He would hope. We would hope not, I think. But um, he, he acts as if he did. And now he's calling for that unity, right? Because he won, according to him, according to what he thinks. And so basically his call for unity is telling conservatives to shut up because now he wants to call for unity because now he can steamroll whatever policies he wants, packs the Supreme Court, etc. But um, fracking, tax cuts, all of these things were things that he didn't really answer. He went back and forth on. He didn't have a platform. And that's because he was the gateway candidate. It wasn't his platform. It was Kamala Harris's platform. It was the radical left's platform, the platform of the Green New Deal, the platform of full-term abortion, the the platform of governmental compulsion of individuals and businesses like Bake the Cake situation. And I could go on and on. Tax brackets, I want to say the highest tax bracket that he proposed was like 70 to 90%, something crazy like that. Like I said, full-term abortion, packing the Supreme Court in the judicial system, a lack of constitutionalism, Specifically in the Second Amendment, he says a ban on assault weapons. Who in the world knows what assault weapons are? That could be your hunting rifle for all we care. I mean, I don't know what he wants to label an assault weapon. So the platform. Next is the track record. Donald Trump has now a four-year proven track record. He didn't have this in 2016, but he does now. He has a track record of first and foremost exposing the media. That's a big one to me. Moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Basically calling Jerusalem the capital. His peace deals in the Middle East, substantial and very large, monumental peace deals in the Middle East. Deregulation of businesses. That's a big one, cutting the red tape. And he is the head of the executive branch. So that means he goes into the IRS. He goes into all these different executive agencies that have a lot of red tape, a lot of regulations, thousands and thousands of regulations on individuals. And he just removes them, starts cleaning them off, streamlining our government, making putting the power back in the legislation and the legislature, the ones we actually elect. So deregulating businesses, thousands of regulations he, de- he he pulled, he deregulated. Bringing to our attention voter fraud, building more portions of the wall, border, border control, justices, over 200 justices that have lifetime appointments, that have strong track records of constitutionalism. His three Supreme Court justices, three now, Supreme Court justices, again, full terms, constitutional strong justices that hopefully will serve on the court for decades as well as all a myriad of lower federal courts he's taken a stand against abortion there's only so much he can do there with the judicial system which now he has helped on the supreme court and then also the legislature there's only so much he can do in those two branches tax cuts i mentioned that and then i think he'd overall stayed the downpouring of tyranny through the second amendment through more governmental control of businesses through corruption, things like that. He wasn't very active on the Second Amendment. I wish he would have been more so pro-gun, but he wasn't anti-gun and he stopped the anti-gun, I think, that had been coming through. So Joe Biden's track record, the crime bill of the 1990s, the racist bill, that's all I can think of on his track record. He's got decades, 40-something years of history where he's done absolutely nothing. And then lastly, so I gave the detailed explanation of the platform, the track record, and then lastly, the person, who he actually is. And with this, I'm just going to play a very brief audio clip for all of you as listeners, because I think this embodies Donald Trump. I haven't been a huge fan of his speeches. Some of them have been absolutely exceptional, but a lot of them have just been catered to his base type speeches. 
This is just very, very brief. And this is who he is as a person I truly, truly believe. If I give you one message to hold in your hearts today, it's this. Treat the word impossible as nothing more than motivation. Relish the opportunity to be an outsider because it's the outsiders who change the world and who make a real and lasting difference. The more that a broken system tells you that you're wrong, the more certain you should be that you must keep pushing ahead. You must keep pushing forward. I think nothing shows more true of Donald Trump and his person than that right there. Relish the opportunity to be an outsider because outsiders change the world. When a broken down system tells you you're wrong, keep pushing forward. That is who Donald Trump has been. Just to put it in perspective, let's get this straight. Donald Trump has given up everything. He's given up everything, his business, his family. He's in his latter years. He's given up everything to be mocked, cursed, called a pig, called a racist, an idiot, a liar. He suffered through the serious COVID, more serious for someone in his 70s like he is. And during his infection, during his COVID, he still worked. And then while recovering, the media berated him as making it up for sympathy, as still not taking it seriously, as not caring about the American people. Donald Trump has sold his wealth and power to help the soul of America. Joe Biden has sold his soul to gain the wealth and power of America. Those are the conflicting and contrasting people. Again, this election, much more so if you zoom out, a contrast, a contrast of ideals, a contrast of persons. And I do truly believe that Donald Trump has been that person, the actual person of who should be the United States president as far as duty and work ethic. I'm not going to get into his character. I don't agree with his character. I don't like a lot of things about his character. And that's really all we saw back in 2016. And so that's why I still would have been unsure and still had that moral qualm back in 2016. But now that we have had four years and we know that that's not the prominence of his character, now I feel much more comfortable why I would vote for Donald Trump. So I hope that answers that question. I know a very long and lengthy answer. And just we just briefly have one more question that we are going to get into before wrapping up the show. It is very simply, what is the Christian's grounds for the right to revolution? First of all, let me just take a quick step back and say this, I think, is probably the most excited I've been for an episode in general. Not necessarily for this question specifically, but just to zoom out past this and to look at the episode as a whole. Aside from maybe the trailer, aside from maybe some interview episodes, but this has been, as far as I'm concerned, probably my most excited for and anticipated episode. I hope it's been helpful to you. I do enjoy these discussions, and again, I hope it's helpful to you. And this is a very important question. As you probably can tell, I'm a big supporter, big fan of the right to revolution. And I would not believe that I would be so much of a fan if I didn't believe that the Christian had grounds to believe it. So I think you can probably tell from the hat right here. I don't know if you can tell from the angle, but the hat says live free or die. I think, well, shirts I wear with the Spartans, the constitution behind me, the American flag next to me. That means that I believe that if tyranny were to rise in our nation so prominently that I have the right to revolution because they are not representation of the flag. That's why I hold the flag here. Not saying that I'm just, oh, I'm just a patriot, but this stands for ideals. This stands for the character of the American people. This stands for the hundreds of thousands of American soldiers who have died to preserve our liberties. And so I stand behind that flag. And a government, a tyranny 
that falsely raises that flag, in my eyes, is is worth being struck down because it's no government at all. I'm going to explain the actual, my answer to the question, the Christian's grounds to the right to revolution. But as you can tell, I'm a big fan. I believe in it. And I believe it so because I do believe it is universal. First, to make this very clear, I don't want to say the right to revolution, but the right to separation or the right to dissolving. It's not the right to revolution. It's not the American revolution per se, because the Americans were not revolting against an authority. The Americans believed that the principles they were standing on were the authority and that the British crown was acting not in accordance to that authority, but in contrast to the principles. And so they weren't revolting against the, the authority. They believed that they were standing upon the authority. So that is why when Christians use the Romans chapter or giving subject to the authority, the, the argument is not that we have the right to rebel against the authority, but that they are not the proper and valid authority whatsoever. They make the example of Paul. Paul didn't revolt. Paul went to the will of the Father. Christ, he didn't fight back. Remember, these are historical narratives and God had a specific will. The Father had a specific will for Christ. Christ had to go to the cross for the remission of our sins. That was the will of the Father, was for him to go to the cross. Who knows, it could have been the will of the Father for Paul to not fight back so that he could go to prison, so that he could lead people to the Lord, so that he could, could be a testimony. It could be a very specific instance, a, a, a historical narrative, a specific instance that was the will of the Father. And we cannot say that that overarchingly forces us to follow that same example. Not that we're not supposed to follow the example of Christ, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Here's how I know so, because I don't want to take a specific story, a specific person, and try to correlate that to my entire Christian life. What I'd rather do is actually look at the scripture as a whole, understand the universal principles and the precepts, and apply it to what we are truly seeing today. So first and foremost, it's not the right to revolution. It's the right to separation or dissolving. I want to make the case of the following. If you are making the case that Americans don't have the right, or Christians specifically don't have grounds to rise up against tyranny, we'll put it that way, then you would make the case then that America shouldn't be a, a, a nation at all. The largest, the nation that has been the most prominent advocate for Christianity through missions, through its own, own home soil, you would believe that that country is invalid, that that country, America, the most Christian nation that has ever existed is invalid, that it should not have ever existed because the founders did what you are claiming should not have been done. And you say, well, no, because they, again, the whole authority argument, that is the same argument for the right to revolution. You would also have to argue to be a pacifist. Also, you would have to argue that America should never engage in any conflicts, that America should not have engaged with Hitler, that America should not have ever engaged with Castro, with Mao Zedong, although we didn't necessarily directly engage with the Chinese government. And you say, no, because that's different because foreign governments, the concept is the same. The biblical principle, the idea that in the Bible, there are God-given divine human rights. And we've talked about that in many episodes before, where we talked about our human rights, unalienable human rights are given to us by God and it's government's job to protect them. So, the reason why we enter into those conflicts is because there are men and women in other countries whose God-given rights are being denied. And it is our duty to step in, whether they be murdering their own citizens or whatnot, to overthrow that government and to promote that liberty, that God-given liberty, because it's our duty. That's the exact same argument that you would use for a foreign war for this same war here. 
that our government rather than rather than a foreign government hurting its own citizens and America stepping in to restore that liberty why can you not make that same case for Americans against their own government again we are now going to get into why it would actually not be our government so you'd have to make the argument that you're a pacifist you'd actually have to not believe in any foreign wars you would have to say that America should never have existed in the first place really now I'm going to get into more clearly Bible principle, I do believe. And that is Genesis 9, 6. I, like I said, whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. This is God ordaining, creating government by its purpose. The purpose of government is established to have a sense of justice, to punish the guilty and protect the innocent, to shed the man's blood of whom is shedding innocent man's blood. That is the purpose of government. And if a government fails to act in accordance to its God-given purpose, then God doesn't look at it as a government at all. You see this with religion all the time. Many people of their own denominations would believe that if they are not adhering to the Bible, then God doesn't look at that as a church per se. The Bible clearly ordains and founds a church. And if it is not following those Bible principles, then is it a church at all? Well, no. The same would be true of government. If it does not follow the purpose of government, this purpose right here, then it is not a government at all. And it is not our authority. That again would go with the whole Romans 13. Well, it's not our government and the whole Roman government. Well, they weren't acting in accordance. Again, specific instance with Paul. We don't want to necessarily say that because again, and we don't know how tyrannical that Roman government was. Again, it goes back to the government is not in acting in accordance to God's purpose. So God does not look at that government as an authority, as a valid government. It rather looks at it as just a group of people. It would, if if the government, the American government were to just go through and slaughter the American people city by city, God would not look at that as a government. He would look at it as a group of bandits, no different than a group of bandits going town to town, hurting people and hurting innocents. And they should be treated as such. And there your answer lies. It's not our authority. Because again, it does not, constitute a legitimate government government if they fail to follow their purpose they fail to be a government that is how i think is a good way to illustrate it. again the declaration of independence is a great way of illustrating this if i were to just read to you the declaration of independence you would see how christian it really is and how bible it really is it starts off when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. It's a biblical argument that the God of the universe entitles us to certain unalienable rights and that when we are denied those rights, then it is not a true government. It is not a true authority. And so you're not revolting against the government. Rather, you are the one founded on that principle. And you are really the true authority and that government is acting against and not in accordance with that authority. It says a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation, not a revolution, but a separation. It ends. We, therefore, the representation of the United States of America in general Congress assembled and it goes on appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, appealing to a just God to rectify to justify their intentions, that it is not to revolt. It's not just uh, an ends. We're not just rebelling to rebel, but it's a means to an ends, to set up a God-given authority, a true biblical government. 
do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are independent. Again, biblical. It is ingrained into our nation. It is ingrained into our systems, ingrained into our culture, and yet secularists, atheists, humanists try to deny it. That is hopefully a courage that I give to you, a challenge that I give to you that comforts you, that you can emphatically say so. I know maybe this question wasn't emphatically applicable to you, so I do apologize. I like this question. I enjoy talking about it. And I think that also the Declaration of Independence, really what I just sampled for you, illustrates why it is so essential to our government, why it's so essential to us and not just the Constitution, but the Declaration and Independence working together to promote, protect, and define our God-given human rights. I hope that answers those questions. I hope that was a blessing to you. I do know there were fewer questions, and so I took a lot lengthier of a time period to answer those questions. But again, I do hope it was applicable to you. If you have more questions, feel free to always, always ask them. Thank you so much for the long journey. As I said, I'm recording this on Thanksgiving, and one of the things I'm grateful for is all of you as listeners. We've come to episode 50, a big milestone, so let's get ready for another 50 to hit that episode 100. Who knows? Maybe it would be a $100 giveaway. I can't make any promises. I guess you'll have to stay tuned to find out. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Josiah Evertson, and this is The Glorious Rescue.